Hey, this is Mark. Welcome to another episode of the Parlay in All Blue. You know, when we think of civil rights, or certainly when I think of it, it's voting. And you should think of voting in civil rights. Housing, should think of housing in civil rights. Access to public accommodations and education should be a part of the civil rights discussion and advocacy. Equally, we should be talking about criminal justice. And today we have Ilham Askia, who is the executive director for Gideon's Promise. And Gideon's Promise, their mission is to transform the criminal justice system by building a movement of public defenders who provide equal justice for marginalized communities. Having competent, high quality, well-funded uh, public defender's office and well-trained public defenders is going to be very critical to any criminal justice transformation. Certainly things like the George Floyd Policing Act and other things that come to mind in that space are important, but public defenders play a large role in this space as well. So sit back and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And uh, she also has a lot of good book recommendations for you as we go along. So thank you again for joining us with the Parlay in All Blue. Ilham Askia, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Illy, how are you? I am great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, I, I really appreciate you being here and whether I, you didn't know this, but this is the first, our first recording of the year. Oh, awesome. I'm glad to be the first. Yeah. So, yeah, you, so you're, you're, you're first on that. Now, I will say that you have also the honor of following up on the uh, a day after the anniversary of that uh, peaceful protest that we had in D.C. last year, or that some people are saying it's just, you know, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and, and, and you know what? I have to acknowledge that because it's such madness. But at the same time, I'm going to help myself out and pull back because that is a, a whole, that's like six episodes in and of itself. That's another episode. And I, and I have, you know, as, as a person who was in this criminal justice, social justice space, like you said, that's a, another hour long conversation. We can have another show. You just have to invite me back. <laughs> yeah, no, right. Yeah. Because listen, it, it, it deserves some attention. So, so I, I may take you up on that. Now, to frame sort of where where we're going to go during this conversation, when I think of civil rights, I think of access to public spaces, public accommodations, think of voting, housing, education and education equity or what have you. Is criminal justice a part of that? Should I be thinking about criminal justice as a part of that? Absolutely. You know, I think all of those, the, the, the areas that you just mentioned and enlisted are all civil rights. Um, people fought for decades, right? So that there's equity and equality in the system, but often criminal justice is ignored. And, you know, there's a great, there's two great books out. One that came out a couple of years ago by a, a gentleman named James Foreman Jr. He was the son a former secretary of SNCC, James Foreman Sr., called Locking Up Our Own. And James 
Foreman Jr. always, he, he's a former public defender. And when he was a young attorney in Washington, D.C., doing this work, representing people, economically disadvantaged people in Washington, D.C., he started to see the parallels, right? And James always talks about criminal justice reform is this generation's civil rights movement. The fact that people, primarily disproportionately people of color, black and brown people, do not receive adequate legal representation in criminal courts is a civil rights violation, right? Just because you don't have the financial means doesn't mean you don't deserve a quality criminal defense lawyer. And for people in the criminal justice system who fall under that category, they are assigned a court appointed counsel or public defender. So absolutely, you have a right to have a competent, qualified and caring attorney when you are in court. And so when you say a right, your organization, which you're the executive director of Gideon's Promise, Gideon, that's 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 coming from a court case. Is that am I right on that? Absolutely. So in 1963, Gideon versus Wainwright was decided by the United States Supreme Court, which say that. So let me back up. Clarence Earl Gideon was arrested in Florida. He was charged with very minor for stealing some money and food from a pool hall. He was arrested. He was sent to court. He was appeared in court. He was charged. He was convicted and sent to prison. He didn't have the means to hire a private criminal defense attorney. And so Gideon wrote a letter and that letter made it to the Supreme Court and say a lay person cannot fight against the mighty arm of the government. Prosecutors, everyone, they have the mighty arm. And so the Supreme Court decided that you should be assigned a lawyer regardless of your ability to pay. And so the Gideon decision, which happened this March will be 59 years to that, that decision, happened in 1963. Coincidentally, the same year as the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And so when we talk about is criminal justice reform civil rights, absolutely. It cannot be a coincidence that that case in, ni- in March 18th of 1963 didn't happen. This, that decision happened at the same time as the March on Washington. Yeah, no. When you, so, so thank you for that. I mean, because clearly in terms of when you're talking about the inequities in the system in the in the inordinate amount of colored people of color who are in the criminal justice system. And then I didn't, I wasn't aware that that case was really smack dab in the, in the civil rights movement. So thank you for that context. So, So while we're there, let's just, let's just keep going Gideon's Promise does what? What is your organization focused on? Right. So we are named, number one, after that U.S. Supreme Court decision, which basically says, although that decision said every person, economically disadvantaged person, would get competent counsel, the promise of Gideon has not been fulfilled. Right. So what has happened over decades in this country in the criminal legal system is that although people were getting assigned attorneys, it was up to the state or the local county or the the, the municipality about who those attorneys were. Some attorneys were signed and never had any interaction or any experience in the criminal justice system. They may have been civil lawyers or malpractice lawyers. And so Although Gideon said you need an attorney, the quality and effectiveness of that attorney is not standard across the country. And so Gideon's promise exists to fulfill the promise of that United States Supreme Court decision in 1963 that says every person, 
regardless of background, deserves to have an effective and well-skilled, well-trained and supported public defender. And so we are Gideon's promise to fulfill that promise. We train and support public defenders all across the country to provide zealous advocacy for people in courts. But we are training lawyers to not just be the best litigators, right? We also train lawyers to really care about the people they serve and be change agents in a system that is dismantling and breaking up families all across the country. So I will say that 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 quality of defense. So I want to dig in a little bit in terms of quality and even, you know, do we have enough uh, public defenders? But I will tell you, and, and this is a whole nother rabbit hole, but I think it was 2017 or 18. It's, it's fairly recent that the Supreme Court said to some parents in Detroit that the state of Michigan, you don't have a constitutional right to literacy, meaning, you know, there were parents who took a case and it was them against the public school system of Detroit, what have you, and makes its way to Supreme Court now for people who are listening. I don't know if this is the Michigan Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, but it came back that there was no right to literacy. And, you know, so like so many things with civil rights, so like we had Brown versus Board of Education, and so we have access to desegregated education and so access to housing. But sometimes, and it sounds like here in the in the public defender space, the quality is, you know, it's you, you get what you get. There's there's not enough focus on quality. I'm glad you guys are doing that, but how does that get left out and sort of what do you guys give me a little more specifics about the type of training and recruiting that you all go through. So let me just touch a point on on the quality piece because there are phenomenal public defender right. offices in this country, and I don't want to negate that. Not every public defender office is bad. There's some of the best offices in the country, San Francisco, Bronx Defenders, the D.C. Public Defender Service, the DeKalb County, uh, Georgia, and here in Atlanta. And so, but there are offices because of systemic challenges, right, that because of where they are, they can't be the offices that they strive to be. And there are three areas to criminal justice reform as we relate to public defense. There is structural changes, financial, and what we focus on at Gideon's Promise is culture. If you don't change those three things in public defense, you will not have a robust client-centered system. And so Gideon's Promise, our mission is to transform the criminal legal system by building a movement of public defenders who provide equality for marginalized people. How we do this is by, with a values-based approach. There's a set of core values that every institution has, which leads them guiding. We have family values, right? Education systems, every child comes first, right? And for us, it is client-centered, it is excellent, it is communication, it is treating your the people you serve with dignity. And so what we do in this values-based approach, we have values-based recruitment, values-based training, and values-based mentorship. And everything we do, we, we rely on those core values to, to train the best public defenders. And so we start lawyers off, as I call them, baby lawyers, new lawyers, right out of law school or less than three years of experience in public defense. 
we give them three years of comprehensive training and support for the thir- first three years of their career. Okay. So they come and they are trained by the best faculty in the country, current and former public defenders who know the standard of representation. So we start that. And then we have five other programs that support these lawyers throughout their career. So you, from a baby lawyer coming out of law school all the way to the director of a public defender office. And then we teach them different skills. The chiefs are managers. How to be great managers. Because what we found is you, you can be the best trial lawyer, but do you know how to work with people? Do you know how to manage your office? We teach the fundamentals of public defense to new lawyers. We teach what it, the standard of client-centered means, that your client comes first. You speak to their family. You speak to their community members. How do you tell the story about the stories about the people that you serve. And so that is the value. The values are so critical and it's the essence of our organization. And I view it to make the analogy for people who are not familiar with public defense. I think about it as a residency for doctors. Okay. We send people to medical school. Actually, we send them to undergrad. Then we send them to medical school. And then they have two to three years of residency where they are learning their craft and perfecting it, and then we send them out. That is the same concept. That is the concept that we are using at Gideon's Promises. You cannot be an effective public defender if you are not supported in this career. It is a very hard thing to do, and it's not a popular thing to do in criminal justice, in a lot of criminal justice spaces. So with Gideon's Promise, uh, you guys focused on the culture. How old is the organization? How long have you been around? We will be 15 years old this year. We are celebrating our 15-year anniversary on March 17th of this year. We're having a big party, Mark. You are invited. Yeah, no, listen. Yeah, we we want to keep everybody safe, right? It's an outdoor, we made it an outdoor event this year. Okay. So we 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 are 15 this year. March, we turned 15 years on. We had no idea that we would even still exist in this space. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to go back a little bit. You said there are three components in terms of what needs to happen in in, in public defense. You said structural. I think the second was financial. Was that right? And then Correct. cultural is where you guys tell me what does structural change look like in this space? So structural change. So you know, basically, when there's a problem, right? You have a company. You say, oh, we we have an issue with productivity, so we're going to hire. We're going to hire a director of something. We're going to we're going to put all of these resources in people. We'll put in social workers. We'll put investigators in. We'll we'll put in administrative support teams to help improve a system, right? And so when you do structural, it's like maybe the infrastructure of the organization or the system, the criminal justice system needs a bit. We'll put more defenders in 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 courts. We'll put more advocates in court. So those are some structural solutions and we need them. We need them to support. When I say financial, right, we'll put more money, we'll dump more money into certain areas to improve the system. But if you don't change the mindset and the heart set of the people who are working in the system, you will continue to have a corrupt and ineffective system. And that is what we are seeing now in criminal justice. So Give me a size, a, a, a sense of who is using public defenders. Like, I mean, how big is, I mean, what's the size of and scale of, of people who need 
public defense? I mean, yeah. So if if uh, about eighty percent of the people who are charged with a criminal offense in this country qualify for a public defender, and what does eighty? That is four out of five people in this country qualify for a public. People come through the system qualify for a public defender. So that is what is happening. Our public defenders, the public defenders Gideon's Promise typically works with, they have an average caseload of 250. That's just the average caseload. Some of our lawyers have held up to 500 clients that they are working with in one calendar year. The American Bar Association recommends that caseloads should not be above 150 cases. And I and Gideon's Promise believes that that is still way too high. And so how can you be an effective attorney when you're handling caseloads like that? So when we talk about structure, another piece I missed in describing structure is we typically as a country navigate towards policy fixes, which we do need. So policy fixes come into that structure piece. And you can say, we are not going to charge for minor offenses. Like a lot of states and, and, and counties are doing away with possession of marijuana under a certain amount, right? It's taking up courts. My traffic stops, right? It's taking up time, of course. So there are policies to say, we're not going to do that anymore. And so those are all great, but you still have all of these people coming into the system who need representation and you can't, you will not be able to fix the problem if you don't change the culture of that system. So four out of five. And so for us, we know our lawyers cannot dictate what their caseloads can be. But if we start putting lawyers in courtrooms who start to stop this fast moving turnstile, this wheel of processing people, then it'll start changing the hearts and minds of the people who are making policy, who are judges, marshals, police officers, prosecutors, from slowing it down and really taking a step back and say, do we really need to process these people? Got it. How are public defender offices financed? It depends. So people always ask that question to me. It depends on the jurisdictions. Most public defender offices are county-based, so they receive funding from the county. They sing a portion. In most of this country, public defenders receive a third of what prosecutors receive in county funding. We do have some state public defender offices. There's very few of them. And then local. So you have the city municipalities also have them. But public defenders are not on parity in most areas in this country with prosecutors. But there are movements, slow movements that are happening where people are trying to level the playing field in terms of the financial resources for offices. You know, I um, I asked that question when Governor Kemp here in Georgia back in 2018 took office. I don't remember when he took office, but I remember that summer, one of the first things that he started working on was what he called um, a gang task force or what have you across the state. And as a part of that, from a legislative standpoint and the budget standpoint, there were three things that I noticed that he did is that one, he added to the GBI, this, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, added the number of prosecutors, added a number of investigators, added just added to that. There were also some 
some language that was put into the state legislature in terms of what's gang activity or what have you. So either expanding or being clear or narrowing, I'm not even commenting on the politics of it. I'm just saying what happened around, you know, what gang activity is. Now, I have to tell you that I'm from Chicago and I grew up in the 80s in Chicago. I actually know what gang activity looks like. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there was zero at that point, but as somebody, and, and, and I have children who are various ages, so it's not like I'm somebody who's detached from you know, what's going I didn't see all of the gang activity, but that, you know, okay, and that was whatever. And then the third thing is, is that there was also a reduction in what state funding for public defenders office. And I, I could not. So to me, it looks like that we're widening the net in terms of what it means, what gang activity means and who are gang members then by just adjacent to that, adding more investigators adding more prosecutors, but then reducing the amount that we put into people being able to defend themselves. And first off, this is, and and for anybody who's listening, you go back in the AJC, maybe we'll put some of the links to the articles in the show notes. But that was the first time that I actually even made any connection to public defense and what we call law and order or any of those things. This is your space. It, 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 it's, it's interesting when you say that you, you probably heard this phrase, history can and will repeat itself. Yeah. I am watching this happening. So there's a, you know, I love, I love books and criminal. There's been a lot of great criminal justice reform books out in the last five years. Another book, and I have to tout our co-founder of Gideon's Promise, Jonathan Rapping released a book in 2020 called Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice. And In John's book, he talks about the tough on crime narrative in the 80s and 90s that that created this mass incarceration problem where we went in the early 80s with only about 214,000 people incarcerated to now 2.2, 2.3 million people in our jails and prisons and overall 7 million people on correctional supervision. And so what you are experiencing or seeing, I am watching in real time, is a repeat of the 90s with the war on drugs, with the narrative that is created about certain communities yeah. that is otherizing them by calling them things. People love the term using gangs, and I'm with you. I, I didn't grow up in Chicago, but we had some activity going on in my hometown, too. And I constantly was in New York, growing New York City growing up. If you create a narrative about certain communities that then creates a narrative that scares and terrifies, this is why people are now punk or, or, or the state is putting more money into policing and prosecution. It's the same thing that happened in the 90s. And unfortunately, when you do that, yeah. that huge mass of people that will come into the system over the next few years. Yeah we're going to end up with the same problem and crush public defenders. And so what I am seeing in real time in the calls we are getting to our office is people can't, our defenders are struggling trying to handle the caseloads and then not only handle the new cases, but the cases that have been sitting for almost two years as a result of this pandemic. And so 
What we try to do at Gideon's Promise is also through storytelling and training our public defenders is change the narrative that has been created about the communities that are targeted, right? So police officers go into some communities to protect them. They go into other communities to target and put them in prison. And let's just be real about yeah. that. And that is Ilham talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, so, I get it. Right. So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's unfortunate that the policy that previous governor deal, Nathan deal put in place, which at that time, Georgia was actually has started to become the darling of the Southern states in terms of reform. Some of the reform efforts that were happening in Georgia under his leadership, you were seeing in Northern and Midwest states. And now that we have Governor Kemp here, yes, they, a lot of the, the progressive work that a lot of great organizations were doing on the Hill and lobbying for are being repealed and rolled back. And we are going to see a swell in our jails and prisons be, as a result of that. Yeah. So so give me give me an example of um, some people or states or municipalities are doing it right. Uh, you mentioned San Francisco and DeKalb and Bronx, and you mentioned some things that Governor Deal is doing. What what are those things? What does that look like? Yeah, there is a, um, in St. Paul, Minnesota, right? The the mayor in St. Paul is, and please check, fact check me because I, I didn't have my notes in front of me, but he, you know, he's eliminating the whole, you know, the, the random traffic stops because you have a tail light that's broken, right? Because what is happening in this country, and we've all been... <laughs> I, I keep going. I mean, you, you know where I'm going with yeah, this, no, right? Yeah, no, but go there, please. You've been... You, you said, but go there. You yeah. know, you're driving and you're at a random traffic stop, right? You Your light is out. You have one headlight. Your tail light is broken. All of those things. And when people who have been driving, and we've known this driving while Black, I've even seen walking while Black, getting stopped, people, they, their their license are asked and they're running. If you have an outstanding warrant, you're arrested, right? You have a warrant. Sometimes people don't even know. And sometimes these are things, you have a warrant for something simple as back child support that someone may not even know in some jurisdictions. So in St. Paul, they're eliminating these traffic stops, right, for minor infractions, which is reducing the number of people who are coming into court for, for these warrants. So that's one example. Um, I'm trying to think of another. Oh, I'm not prepared, Mark, because I had my list before when yeah. I was on the cast. Um, that's just one example um, yeah. that I can think of. And I'm sorry, I'll, I'll try no, to think. No, that's right. no, but so, so here's the, and the, and the reason I asked that is, is that and to backtrack a little back in, in terms of civil rights, and listen, I am going to indict middle-class Black folks right now. So, and this is Mark. This isn't Illy doing this. This is Mark. Hey, so, it could be Illy too. I call people out and, all the time. And, 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 and so where I'm going with this is, is that, and particularly with the, the book you, you said, uh, Jane Foreman Jr. locking up her own. Hey, Atlanta has had only Black mayors since Maynard Jackson. I mean, and, and you know, we have in in certain cities county governments controlled counties controlled by by black folks or what have you and so when i was asking is civil rights is criminal justice a part of civil rights there are a lot of people 
right or wrong will just say, well, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about people who are committing crimes now. So that doesn't have anything to do with me wanting to make sure that um, my son or daughter goes to a good middle school, a good public middle school. Just sort of structurally, what do you, what do you guys see in terms of where the progress is happening and, and, and what can we do to make changes? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because Atlanta is one of the focus cities in that book. And, and, and it's one of the reasons I brought that book up. And the challenge is when we were having in the 90s, you know, it was it was the age of crack. I, I, I don't live too far from Boulevard. Uh, uh, Avenue in, in Atlanta. And, you know, when I first moved here, I heard it was a, a rough neighborhood to me. And it was really bad before I got here. I've been in Atlanta for 18 years now. And to protect communities, our own communities, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm addressing people of color, and, and especially in Atlanta and D.C. and in New York, this policing came about. And that's why I say history can repeat itself. Yes, there's a rise in crime all across this country, every major city is experiencing. And that is a result of what? And so I get frustrated because we have a tendency to react versus to take a step back and be preventative and proactive. And so I don't want listeners to hear me saying that all of our great leaders of the past and people who were in government making these decisions didn't have the best interest at heart of their communities, but unfortunately did not see down the line that this narrative that was created was going to be used to incarcerate the very people we were trying to protect. Yeah. And it, this narrative was going to be used to not fund public defense who were trying to protect the constitutional rights of people. It's not just, it's a, it's a constitutional right that you get someone to represent you. Yes. And they should be effective. And so, um, and I'm going off and I just lost my, lost your question mark. I'm so sorry, but so for us, we have to be careful and you are right. Atlanta is one of those cities that has had black leadership for decades and I have been disappointed in some of the leadership in their response to protecting the very communities that they promised to serve. Yep. And, you know, I always say south of I-20, it, it still struggles. I-20, anyone who's listening that's not in the city, yep. interstate I-20, you know, it's still struggling. And the only reason it's not is developers are coming in and unfortunately displacing the very people that it's supposed to help. And so, yes, we have to focus on criminal justice. We have to focus on banning the box, not just in state institutions like Governor Deal Pass, but private institutions. We have some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies in Atlanta yep. who are desperately looking for people to work. If we can eliminate that box that has to make you have to check that you have a had had a criminal conviction, we have some very talented people that are returning to to this, and we have some very talented people who are out who yeah, need jobs. Right. And right. so, it's a lot to reform a criminal justice. I'm focused on public defenders to keep people from going into the system in the first place by telling their stories. But yeah, I, I have been disappointed. I have been disappointed in leaders who have not taken have taken a stance until it affects them personally. And that's why I love John Lewis, 
The late Congressman John Lewis, he was a Gideon's Promise fan. We named our Lifetime Achievement Award after him because he understood the need to have representation because of what he experienced during the civil rights movement. And so I, you know, I can't, I speak highly, man, I miss him terribly. And so that is the type of leader. That's the type of leadership that we should have in this major city, this very fast growing city. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a thing that people, because criminal justice sounds like it's behavior based, which you know, we all make choices. Let's not get it wrong, but there's so much crime that is systematic. I mean, it is. We have so much crime. Are, so there's so much criminal activity or things that people that are under court supervision that are committing crimes of poverty. Yes, or they are committing, or they have committed crimes that, if they had proper defense, so. There's a lot of, uh, and I don't know where it's specific law stand, but we could just point to marijuana. All right. So there are a lot of people who, blacks and whites, statistically smoke marijuana at the same rate, have, have forever. Right. But the jails, the prisons are full of black people who were not distributors of marijuana, but users of marijuana. And so whenever I hear that, I hear somebody went into the system, right, into court, and they had the money to get off, right? Or they had the, you know, the and by the money, I'm not talking about, like, paying a judge. That's not what I mean. They, they were able to afford competent defense. Right. They were able to afford defense to be able to defend themselves. And so I think that's kind of when I'm beginning to understand more about criminal justice and, and then your work in terms of um, – public defense, I think that's an area, an easy area or an example to point to is just 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 being able to defend yourself from nonviolent crimes. And and the thing about you mentioned poverty, mental health, substance abuse are some of the areas that when you look at the clients that our public defenders serve, most of them fall into that category. About 85 percent of the, of the things, the charges that happen are nonviolent offenses. That's the challenge. But as media and certain politicians that want to get funding in certain areas, they start pushing that other, you know, 15% of crimes that are violent as the status quo in this country. And that has never been the case, right? People who are convicted, they have studies have shown People who have been convicted, 90% of them have claimed that they were guilty of something that they were not guilty of. Just to go home, to get out of a jail that was horrific and inhumane. And so those social factors that play into this pipeline, this assembly line, quote unquote, justice that are happening, we ignore. That's why I said People, we are a reactive country versus proactive. And so for our public defenders and the, what we do with our public defenders is really learn the stories about the people they serve so they can zealously advocate for them, whether it's to send them to a diversion program, a rehab center, a job training program, whatever the case may be, versus incarceration. We know incarceration does not work. Right. It doesn't work. And I'm not saying that some people don't deserve consequences. I want to be very clear with that. But do the consequences match 
what the charge is happening or the conviction. And, and, And that's the challenge we have in this country right now. And marijuana is a prime example. Crack cocaine, prime example of what's happening now. Crack cocaine, yeah, prime example. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I don't know if this falls under public defense, but with the border uh, crisis that we've had over the last three or four years, how are those people represented in court? So it's interesting you say that because we have, they are people who come over to the border. It's an immigration issue. So, but it's been called crimmigration these days because what's happening right now, real time on the Texas border, we have a number of public defenders. We're actually, they're defenders who are being dispersed from up north down to Texas to help support public defender offices who are overwhelmed. Because what is happening is that the state has decided that if you can find a criminal uh, a criminal offense, you automatically get deported. So if you are charged with a crime, and you are not a citizen of this country, the first thing they ask for is deportation. We've had people who've been in this country for 20 years who came as children, who've been productive in the country. Something happened, traffic violation, depending on the state, and they were sent to immigration court and been asked, the government was asked to send them back. And so we did a podcast, Gideon, Gideon's Promise, on crimmigration, where we had an, a lawyers who were former public defenders who are now, I think it was our July episode last year, that talk about this intersection of criminal the criminal courts and the immigration courts. So what's happening on the border is an immigration court issue. And it's also happening in states that are not on the the border, um, where people are being arrested and then sent home. So what we also find is in this COVID era, uh, some people who may not be citizens are afraid to get help. They are afraid to actually report crime because they fear that they will be sent to the courts and deported. And that's what's happening. But there is an intersection between public defense and immigration law. What do um, other industrialized countries do in this space? They do better than we do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think if you look at the UK, for example, right, they they have a criminal justice system. People are represented. They have a, a, a court appointed system for those who cannot afford attorneys. But they also have a very humane probationary parole system where, you know, you have done your time. It is time for you to matriculate back. You report. We try to find the resources to support. It's not that you are on probation, parole, and we're just waiting for you to mess up so we can send you back, right? Georgia, unfortunately, has incarceration so high that that it surpasses industrial countries like the Netherlands, like Belgium, like uh, a lot of European nations. It is the highest, right? We have 5%, the United States has 5% of the world's population but 25% of its incarceration, 25%. We lead the world in incarcerating people and we only are 5% of the population. And so that says something. And the question is why? Yeah, my family, we went to uh, Ethiopia a couple of years ago and my daughter was, she was, I think, first or second year of college at that point, and she asked a, a guide who's with us most of the time, 
said, you know, where where are the police, right? And where, mm-hmm. you know, where 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 you take where do you take criminals? And it took them a long time to get there because now now let me let me say this: all countries have problems and what have you, but mm-hmm. you know where a lot of people and this isn't a good thing. A lot of people who were locked up was really more political crimes and political right. criminals and what have you. But in this Ethiopia is has high rates of poverty. This is not a, a rich country at at all. But there just weren't as many police around. And this and and, and listen, this poverty around and what have you. There's something about, like you said, that narrative and that we just need police. I think once you put a lot of people out there and you, their primary job at least sort of the culture of it seemingly to me is I need to lock people up and I need to lock specific people up. Then it happens. It's like, there's a reward for it. I mean, it just, it it really seems like we're focused on arresting people. And then if you look at the way we fund, you know, prosecutor's offices versus the way we fund public defense, looks like we're cool with, you know, locking it, putting a a lot of people away for a long time. Because it's also, I mean, we can't negate the elephant in the room. It makes money. If you continue to lock up people, this prison industrial complex that is happening, this mass incarceration, it wasn't accidental. It was on purpose, right? When we ended slavery, and Michelle Alexander talks about that in her book, The New Jim Crow, Ava DuVernay's documentary, 13th, Right. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery unless convicted of a crime. And so who do we get to have? Where where do we find cheap labor? Right. How do we get things built? Right. And so the, the challenge we have is it is not a cost benefit. And I hope countries who aren't doing this don't adopt this way that the United States has done. But. The only way to get this cheap labor is to incarcerate people and to use that productivity. You know, beds, some states were getting money from companies, many of which were mentioned in that in that film. The more beds you had, right, the more built, the more money you received. And so we can't discount that. And then we are paying laborers in, in prison 15, 48 cents an hour to do work. And it's unfair. And then we release them with that check. But no one can live off of that as a returning citizen. And so it, it is a system that was was intentional. It is a system that needs to be dismantled and, and rethought. It was not the system, as they say, our forefathers or whoever was here in the Constitution. It was not meant to be the way it is functioning now. But people have found ways to do it and found loopholes to do it. It needs to be changed. And so... It's a long, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint to reform the system, but it's going to take some very thoughtful and like-minded individuals to see the need that do not omit the conversation about public defenders being at the table when these reform efforts happen. Yeah, I would tell you also from a, just a following the money standpoint, the the when I the concept of private prisons, first time I heard it was several years now, I, I just couldn't understand it. It's somebody who has had backgrounds, a background in, in sort of corporations. Corporations make money. And corporations look for customers. I mean, that's just, and that's, and I say that as a good thing. You, you know, I, listen, I have really good coffee mugs. I want to sell as many coffee mugs as you're, you're in the business of creating customers, right? And so, you know, part of my, 
partnership, if I'm making coffee mugs, is going to be with coffee makers and coffee shops and what have you. And I'm going to be advertising or keep creating a narrative around how good it is to drink coffee or what have you. And I don't know why we, we don't understand that the minute you have private corporations that are dedicated to imprisoning people, that they are not going to influence and try to increase the number of beds. And I, and I know there's been some pushback on that, but then my understanding is that a lot of those private corporations are now on the border and creating those temporary detention centers or what have you. I mean, it's just so much that we just need to just really think about what are we doing here and why are we doing it? Yeah, it, it, it's a lot and it's so much. And so when people ask me, like, Illy, that's a lot of apple to try to eat at one time. I try to focus on our area, which is public defense. But you, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I mean, we can we can take it all off. We can talk about overseas labor. We can talk about a lot of stuff that helps fuel the economy of this country. But I do I do believe there there is a way to change it. I think that we need to be fair and equitable in this system. And it is not. It is unbalanced. And, you know, Lady Justice is supposed to be completely blind. We have a little uh, a logo we use sometimes where she's peeking up under the blindfold because people, the disparity in sentence structure, like you said, about black people, white people, you know, affluent people, where they're coming from. Sometimes it's it's economic. It can be white and white. But it's poor white versus affluent white, right? Because I don't want to discount that the system is not affecting people who, not of color, right? Our, our, our folks, we work in upstate New York and in West Virginia, but it is disproportionately unfair to people of color. So we, I do want to make that note that it is that the rates of people who are incarcerated in our system are disproportionately people of color. Yeah. How did you come to this work? Yes. <laughs> Well, no, when I was born, no, um, no, um, I was introduced to the criminal legal system when I was five. My father was convicted, um, was charged with armed robbery and convicted and spent 10 years in Attica Correctional Facility. He was taken away when I was about five, five and a half years old. So I spent my formative years visiting Attica Correctional Facility every two weeks for about good 10 years. And notice the treatment, you know, of my father once he was released, how he's treated. Notice the mental challenges my father had from being incarcerated. When he passed away, he still lived in the basement of my grandmother's house, who lived there longer than I had been alive. And what I learned, I was going to be, I was an educator. So what I wanted to do is, is, prevent children and families from going into the system by really being a great educator and training teachers. But what I found that the education system failed its children, the criminal legal system will swallow them whole as adults. And so when I watched what happened to my dad, I decided that I wouldn't let any other child experience what I child, my experience of having an incarcerated parent and the narrative that was created about him and my family that we did not matter that we deserve to be policed. Our community deserved to be policed. Black and brown men were deserved to be thrown, incarcerated, and didn't deserve proper defense. And my father did not get a defense attorney, a public defender that zealously advocated and told his story that if you took him out of this 
family life, it will destroy the family. It will dismantle the family. We, we experienced a lot of hardships because of that. And so all that said, that's how I came into the work through education and through personal experience of trying to prevent this from happening from for uh, to other people. And thank you for sharing that. And I, I will tell you that I didn't think of people returning until reading the new Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander spends a lot of time on it. And then, you know, I, I also didn't think about it until I started to see friends and in, in people that I know who, you know, couldn't vote for various that were still under court supervision for things like child support or yeah. what have you that that it, it that it seems like going into the to the criminal justice system it's like once you're branded labeled criminal you're always criminal and there's just so much of even once you are no longer imprisoned that you still just don't have access to and that you know that's a whole nother area that where where I think we just need a whole lot more yeah, and, and people have served their time. You know, I, I don't do reentry work, but we do have, we, we make sure when we do our trainings of our new classes coming in every year that they hear from people who've been directly impacted by the system, people who've been incarcerated, their experience, and also family members of people who are incarcerated. Yeah. People often forget when our family members are doing time, yes. we're doing time with them. Yeah. And the struggles we face just to have a simple visit. And there are thousands of families right now in this country because the prisons and jails have been closed to, out to visitors who have not seen their loved ones in almost 20 months. And so that is important. There are families, there are fathers, there are mothers, there are aunts and uncles and grandmothers. And so you're absolutely right. It's that there's so much work that needs to be done. I, I, there was a panel I sat on in New York a long time ago, criminal justice panel. And there was a, a, a young man who, who made this analogy. He said, just think about it. I've done my time. I've served my time. He said, but every time I get rejected because of a criminal record or people look at me or shine away when I tell my story, it's like having my offense in a posted on my forehead every single time. Let people be, let people return and be productive citizens. But that's that's another hour-long podcast you should have me well, on. No, will. no, <laughs> no, because listen, and and I and again I really appreciate your your candor and, and you sharing that. I really appreciate that. Something else from that I've heard Michelle Alexander say in this space is, is that in the United States, we have one in four women who has a family member, a loved one, or close someone close to them who is either been locked up or still under court supervision. And for black women, it's one out of two, it's half. And so the 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 strain and the stress and the uh, burden that the family members carry goes really unnoticed. And the communities, listen, for every time, and I don't want to make this into like some after school special because it's very serious. But at the same time, for whenever we talk about we need some some people here that can help these boys learn how to play the drums. Well, some of them are locked up. We we need some some people here to help them, you know, learn to tie ties. Some of them are locked up. There's so many things. It's not like, yes, yeah, so anybody again, because I just don't want to hear it. Violent crime and people who have done things, people need to be held accountable, right? 
But what I'm talking about is just the number of why are they going? Do we have other alternatives? And are they? And just because you're accused doesn't mean that you did. And that's another thing. And when when defenders are representing people and you're absolutely right. You're just accused of doing something. It's an accusation. It's unbelievable. People are accused. You already want to just lock them away for an accusation. How many of us have done something that was illegal? Right. We just didn't get caught. Jaywalking is illegal in most states. We just didn't get caught. And so you deserve a, a proper a defense. Yes. And so when you mentioned jaywalking, I want to point everyone to Google this walking wild black Jacksonville, Florida. It was an article in ProPublica. You it's going everybody just just Google that because that that's a whole another thing. So, you know, listen, we really appreciate you. And as we wrap up, one question that we ask everyone that comes on to the parlay in all blue is what does it mean to live well? Living well to me is providing service to others. When I provide service to others, it makes me feel good and it, it builds up my spirit. And so my cup always runneth over, as they say, when I'm able to provide a service. And Congressman Shirley Chisholm said, service is the rent you pay for time here on this earth. That is the mantra that I live by every single day. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And thank you for that. And so we will lighten it up a a little bit. And thank you and John again for for doing this work and for everyone who, and I mean this sincerely, that, um, you know, when people were talking last year about Black Lives Matter and, you know, and I saw a number, I saw multi-generations, multi-race, LGBTQ people, women, men, old, young out in the streets, you know, what have you, the work goes on. And so whether it's something like this, you know, supporting somebody like Gideon's Promise or getting involved is the next step, is that all of the protesting is super good and is super important, but there has to be some action around. So service, thank you. Thank you for your service. (laughs) Thank you for that. I really mean that. So I am a child of the Great Migration. My receiving station was Chicago and we had <laughs> and Detroit and and others. One that is was a big receiving station that I didn't think a lot about until my wife and I saw Lackawanna Blues mm-hmm. uh, in, in New York or Broadway. It's Buffalo. That, yes, 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 the yes. Bilo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I didn't, I didn't. But Buffalo clearly is. I mean, part of that. Yes, absolutely. My hometown. I love Buffalo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So with that, Buffalo mm-hmm. has produced uh, Mark Twain. Okay. Brian <laughs> McKnight. Yes. You illy, right? <laughs> Buffalo's one of um, the best creations. There yes. you go. There you go. Um, Beverly Johnson, supermodel, mm-hmm. and also um, Rick James. Rick James is from Buffalo, okay? Yes, Rick James what is from is, Buffalo. What is your favorite Rick James song? Uh, I may get in trouble for this, but I love Mary Jane. I, I, and the funny thing about it, I didn't learn what the song <laughs> right. really meant until yes. I was 35 years old. I kid right. you not. That's right. I didn't know what the, I just loved 
that. And, and one story about Rick James, Rick James and my mother grew up in the same neighborhood. So they used to okay. Okay. when they were younger. But I'm not going to tell those Rick James stories because my mom is still with us and right. she would be really upset about it. But they were they were pretty good friends um, growing up in the neighborhood where they grew up. <laughs> all right. All right. Very good. Very good. And, and you see why I didn't even give up the neighborhood either, right? I was like, yep, I, I'm not I, I, you, you kept it. And listen, everybody's safe. <laughs> listen. listen. We all know Rick James, and, and, and Mary Jane was a cut. It was a stone jam, so that's a good one. Now, the last one will be this, is that, and, and I was unaware of this, um, but Buffalo apparently has a lot of pizzerias, and it's on unique pizza. It's got the best, some of the best food in the country. Buffalo so, has you, some good food. You know, so I know the wings, right? I think that's maybe, you know, a caricature of the city at this point, but I, I was unaware of the pizza. I was told to ask, Leonardi's, Leonardi's, mm-hmm. Bochi, Bochi Club, I think. Bochi, 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 Okay, or Lenovo. Okay, for, for pizza now. For pizza, for pizza. Okay, because this is a different thing for wings. I just want you to know. Okay. So, hope, so there's a debate, and I hope my friends who still live in Buffalo don't hear me, but Bochi's had the best beef pepperoni pizza. Okay. Yeah. And so I have not been home, as you know, because the pandemic in a while. So that is. However, Lenovo's used to have the best steak pizza. And that's what I, I when I ever I go home, I fly in. And before my, when my grandmother's alive, before I would see them, I literally would go to Lenovo's first off the airplane to get steak pizza and wings. But I would say Bocci's had the best pizza when I was growing up there. Yeah. All right, all right. So, so I will have to pay a visit to Buffalo to see for myself. Uh, Illy, we really appreciate having you, and thank you again for your time. I don't know if all the best is the proper term when you're talking about the type of work that you're doing, but listen. Um, we wish for the best, maybe. <laughs> we wish for the best and, 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 and hope that, listen, it's so much and it doesn't happen overnight, but, you know, I, I hope that you all make as much progress in this space as you humanly can with the time that you have. So all right. really thank you, Mark, it. so much. All right. Okay. Well, all right. Everybody else, just uh, stay tuned and we will see you on the other side of, of, of this episode for the outro. Thanks. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us, share the podcast, make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.